and welcome to Marysville Church of Christ podcasts. This is Commute, where we break down yesterday's teaching and sermon just a little bit more. My guest today is Jesse Davis, intern of creativity here at Marysville Church of Christ. Jesse, how are you today? And uh, you looking forward to uh, finally getting back behind the mic? You know, I'm doing pretty good today. Uh, and yeah, I'm excited to be back here and, you know, talking about these things again. It's been a bit and really happy we're getting back to this. You know, what's crazy is we talked a little bit about the story of Ravel's Bolero, uh, and you and I have done a lot of research on it, talking about it, laughing about it. It is one of the craziest stories I think I've ever heard. And obviously for the sermon, we only have 35 minutes, and we had to actually get to, you know, Jesus and the Bible. So we couldn't spend a lot of time telling the story. But I think it would be amiss if we didn't uh, relate this really incredible tale to the audience here. So to start off our podcast, Jesse, you're a better storyteller than I am. Uh, will you tell the people the story of Ravel's Bolero, the full unabridged version? And then we'll jump into uh, how it relates to what we talked about yesterday and dive a little deeper into this idea of grace. Jesse, take it away, my man. So Ravel was a composer and uh, musician who wrote phenomenal pieces. And one of those pieces, his final piece, was titled Bolero. It was a haunting and unique piece that stuck in the minds of all who listened to it uh, with its repeated and insane feel. And it didn't just have insanity in the music, but it began to fester and grow insanity in the mind of Ravel himself. Over the next six years and beyond, Ravel began to become obsessed with this musical piece. He couldn't write anything else. He couldn't um, continue music. He just kept humming and singing this piece over and over again. There are images of him attempting to cut vegetables, you know, to prepare a meal. He's humming Bolero with his eyes closed and dripping slowly onto the vegetables is his own blood as he is not holding the knife by its handle, but instead the blade, completely unaware, transfixed by the tune in his head. As times continued, Bolero would attend a dinner with his friends. They would eat, it would be fine, and later in the middle of the night in a snowstorm, Ravel would appear again, coming to his friend's house, humming Bolero, completely confused and lost, thinking that it was now time to eat dinner. Over the years, Ravel began to lose the ability to speak, to write. All he could do was sing and hum Bolero over and over again. In his later years, there are recordings of him in his journals attempting to relearn the alphabet because he didn't know it. He didn't know how to speak, how to read, how to write. Things he lost due to the kaleidoscopic effect that was this musical piece. But the craziest part about it is it didn't stop with Ravel. Eighty years later, a painter by the name of Anne Adams would paint a piece inspired by the music entitled Unraveling Bolero. She herself, six years later, symmetry disturbing with that exact number of years, began to lose the ability to speak, couldn't form complete sentences, couldn't follow a train of thought, and phenomenal painter, she lost the ability to paint. 
and just like Ravel himself became obsessed with the music, unable to ever return to the mental state she was before. I don't know what it is about this musical piece, but it is haunting and definitely has some psychological effect on those who listen to it too much. Yeah, it was uh, one of the biggest reasons why I decided not <laughs> to put it in my sermon. I didn't want anyone, you know, holding the blade knives the wrong way around in the middle of service. But one thing that is fascinating about this piece is the psychological effect it seemingly has on all people. It is incredible that it doesn't matter who you are or where you're from, there is a part of this song that relates so much to the creative mind. The more creative you are, the more this piece seems to resonate and haunt you. You know, one thing that jumps out to me as we were, uh, as we were reading the story is just the incredible facet of the fact that, like, it has, since it's been written in 1928, this piece has captivated the minds of some of the most incredible uh, musicians and creatives by its unique and strange and haunting effect. And in many ways, this is kind of the parallel we used when we were reflecting on our sermon uh, this past Sunday. This sermon, uh, we basically discussed the idea of how Bolero's madness, the madness instigated by that repetitive drumbeat, over and top the melody, and how it lured you in with its simplicity, with its monotony, until eventually you couldn't escape Bolero's madness. And we related the fact that in Christianity, we struggle with that by trying to create laws and rules to follow, believing that if we can just do enough, if we just uh, accomplish enough good, if we just live righteous enough lives, then somehow we'll be worthy of the grace that was given to us. We find ourselves trapped in this matrix, trapped in the matrix of Bolero's madness, trying desperately to achieve a salvation we can never actually get until eventually we feel empty. We feel lost, and we feel scared. So many people in the church today struggle with not believing they're saved. And the reason they don't believe they're saved is because they've been trapped in Bolero's madness, endlessly pursuing right, rightness of beliefs, laws, and functions of work, expecting that in those things they'll find salvation. The Bible, on the other hand, teaches a very different uh, counter-melody, this beautiful idea of grace, the idea that grace truly saves you, and that is it, full stop. When Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace you are saved by faith, not by works, so that no man should boast, what he is intrinsically saying is that the melody of salvation is the story of grace, you being saved despite you, entirely because of Jesus' love. And there is a freeing reality to the, note, to the fact that we can try our best to serve God and do his commandments, but we don't have to worry that we're going to lose our salvation if we mess up. Furthermore, it's important to know that the idea of law and works are important. I'm not devaluing them. There are commands that we are to follow. Especially in the New Testament, Jesus gives us a lot of them. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do not judge. Give without expecting anything in return. Do not get angry. Live in joy. Find peace in all moments. These are the commands that Christ gives us, and it is important that we live that way. But not for salvation. No. For identity. So that way we can show that we belong to Christ. And we can show the world that we're Christians. No part in this is your salvation actually up to you. And thank God, because if it was up to us, we'd mess it up. Jesse, uh, as you were reflecting on this, do you have any thoughts from the sermon on Sunday? Yeah, um, I do have a little bit of some thoughts. Um, I think this idea that we must do these things to be saved is one that 
a lot of people don't like to talk about, but is implied, is really a main idea in a lot of churches, um, that you must do these things or you're not a good Christian and you're not going to heaven. We make it as if we can decide by these set of rules who goes to heaven or hell, as if we have that kind of power or thought, capability. And this thought process, this way of teaching, we can agree that it's wrong, that it's not accurate, but it's simply not just that, it's damaging. It's hurtful. It hurts people of the past, and it hurts my generation, and, and it, this kind of teaching and thought process has personally affected me. And I think that we need to really take an active stand and be conscious about not teaching this idea of perfection seeking and instead teach this all-encompassing, out-of-our-control grace. You know, when we uh, consider this thought a little further, I think you're onto something really profound here. Uh, as someone who, obviously, I work a lot with your generation because, you know, youth pastor thing. Um, but one thing that we've really discovered in these classes as we've discussed is that this idea of perfection seeking is not only unhealthy for every Christian, but especially for the youth as they're growing up believing that they have to do every single thing right in order to have salvation is ludicrous. Because which one of us has done every single thing right? The message that we need to hear, that the world needs to hear, isn't one of come into our building, and if you're perfect, you'll find Jesus and salvation. But one that says Jesus has already found you. He loves you and wants to bring you into his family. And I think this, this changing of the guard is so important in the way we teach and talk. And I think it's something that we will all have to work on collectively as a church community. Really emphasizing and being careful the way we talk and pray and speak to our friends. Reminding the idea of grace. Reinforcing the idea of grace and mitigating and minimizing the idea of law and works for salvation. You know, Jesse, let me ask you, you know, we've had several conversations over the last couple of months, um, not only as, you know, you as my intern, but also just in classes in general, um, as we've been really exploring and uh, diving into this idea of a gracious God, a God of grace, how has it affected and changed your, your belief, your faith positively? When it becomes about a God of grace, a God that will love me and will accept me no matter what I may do or how I may fail. It's given me faith. It's given me a sense of purpose. It's made me lose a lot of anger and, and really just bitterness I was holding to God because I was saying things such as, you know, if you only accept those who are who are good, who are perfect, who are believers, who do not doubt you, then I want nothing to do with you. This, this elitist society is nothing that I can believe in and is something I refuse to follow. Um, but looking at, this God, looking at God as this graceful, this loving entity who refuses to let our works demean that love is, is a God that I can follow and is a God that I can and do have faith in. And it's why I not only want this to be more commonly talked about, but it's why I get upset when people don't, because by making God out to be someone that only is w interested in your works, you are demeaning the grace of God, 
you are devaluing God and you are inaccurately speaking of God. And that is something I won't stand for. You know, I think that is profoundly said. I think you're right. I think you said a line in there that I'm definitely going to steal at a later time, that we can never allow our works to demean God's love. The reality is God loves us. He always has and he always will. Grace is something God freely offers to us. And thank goodness that we don't have to earn it. We don't have to deserve it. We just have to accept it. Jesus right now is calling out to all of us, every single one of us, desperately craving that you join him in the family of him in his kingdom, one of egalitarianism, of equality, of love, of care, and of acceptance. It doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done. It simply matters that you choose him. Thank you so much for joining us today.